We're seeing a wave of transphobia sweep the South. According to the Human Rights Campaign, it's been a record-breaking year for anti-trans legislation, with more than 80 transphobic bills introduced nationwide, including several bills that make it much harder for trans people to receive health care. A bill in North Carolina would require parents to be notified if their children were displaying any gender non-conforming behavior. Somehow, the party that is historically claimed to be for small government thinks that it should entrust the state with the power to establish and enforce gender norms. But it wouldn't be the first time. Throughout the 20th century, states across the country enforced laws that banned behavior the state deemed sexually deviant and it had real-world damaging consequences for people. Welcome to The Rec Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are speaking with Minnie Bruce Pratt, an icon in queer and feminist activism and a celebrated poet and writer. Minnie Bruce knows what it's like to be targeted by these laws. When she came out in the 1970s, the state of North Carolina took her kids away from her. And when her spouse, Leslie Feinberg, grew ill, Minnie Bruce learned directly how our healthcare system treats trans Americans. We talk about the way growing up in the crucible of the South helped shape her and the importance of sharing the stories of queer Southerners. Minnie Bruce has so many great, rich stories for us, so let's get started with this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Minnie Bruce Pratt, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. I'm excited to be talking with you, John. You know, I texted with a friend yesterday and I said, I'm interviewing Minnie Bruce Pratt tomorrow. And she said, oh my God, she's a queer icon. I had no idea she was from Alabama. And so I thought maybe we should start out talking about that. You know, th these two parts of your identity, maybe the Alabama story doesn't necessarily get told quite as much. So let's start out by talking about your life in Alabama and the time that you spent at the University of Alabama, you know, kind of at the peak of the civil rights movement there on campus, just after the stand in the schoolhouse door. You grew up not far from where I live now in Tuscaloosa. You grew up in Centerville. And so tell me about your life in, in Alabama. Yes. Well, I was actually born in Selma because that was the nearest hospital. And I grew up in Centerville, like you say. I lived there my whole life till I went off to college at Tuscaloosa. And I, um, I grew up under segregation, I absolutely. The last year of my high school yearbook, I think it was the last year or it was my junior year, I can't remember, had a Confederate flag on the cover of the yearbook. It was, it's a small town centerville. I still have the house there that I grew up in. I go, I come home three, four times a year before the pandemic. I still consider Alabama my home. I'm really unhappy that people don't know I'm from Alabama. <laughs> I want them to know I'm from Alabama. I'm, proud of it. I'm proud of the resistant traditions of Alabama resistance to oppression that are embedded in the soil there. And um, I was in the band. I was a drummer, played the kettle drums. I was the bookworm. I read a lot. I grew up in Centerville and, and you know, many stories I could tell you there, but then in 64, I went off to the university and that was, it, that was the fall after Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door, the famous stand, segregation now, segregation forever. 
And then, of course, he was immediately proved wrong (laughs) by the attorney general having, you know, the the Alabama National Guard federalized and then saying, okay, we're going in and, you know, you're going to register the Black students who are applying to the university. I was oblivious in at a certain level to great social change movements that were happening in my birthplace in Selma and you know everywhere in the state I on one level I was oblivious but that's not the right word I had been whitewashed into oblivion and I was noticing on some level like for instance when the freedom riders were beaten and the bus was burned in Anniston I saw that on television. I saw it. I knew what was happening. My cousin, the cousin I was the closest to, lived in Anniston and I would spend parts of the holidays with her. I, so I knew Anniston. I knew, I knew what was happening on one level and I didn't know on another level. And of course, I was a child, a white child of segregation, which meant every voice of authority that I ever heard was a segregationist voice. My parents, my Sunday school teachers, my teachers, school teachers, my minister, the mayor of the town, the publisher of the town newspaper, everybody. So when I was at the university, I just only barely began to think, you know, it began, my teachers at the university, this was like post the McCarthy era, nobody at the university was saying anything to us about what was going on, my teachers. Even though the segregation had been broken, nobody was verbalizing anything. The only thing that happened was that my philosophy teacher in the honors course I was in took us out of class one day because there was a demonstration on the quad, a little tiny, tiny demonstration on the quad because Lurlene Wallace was reviewing the troops. This is the Vietnam War was going on. She was reviewing the troops, the ROTC troops on the quad. And there was a demonstration on the quad against the war. I don't even know. I was so out of it. I, you know, I didn't even quite know what was happening. It was the first demonstration I ever saw though, in person. That was sort of the beginning. Well, you know, we're both English majors who graduated from the University of Alabama, so I have that kinship with you. But you went on to to study at UNC to pursue a graduate degree in in English. If that movement in Tuscaloosa planted a seed, and certainly growing up in in Alabama, you know, in in the crucible of civil rights that the state is, is something you've carried with you. But North Carolina is when you really started to get involved with, with activism. Tell us what North Carolina was like compared to, you know, your life in Alabama as you were leaving and going out there, and then also about getting involved with the women's liberation movement? Quite different in North Carolina. I I agree, the seed was planted. I I do say the great social change movement saved my life because I think I would have been a bitterly unhappy and, and damaged person if the movements hadn't been there. They came to me, I didn't go to them, right? And at, in North Carolina, what was different was of course in Alabama, it was, the, it was the black civil rights 
movement and, and the seeds of the Black nationalist movement in Lowndes County. But in North Carolina, it was more the anti-war movement. And so there were big demonstrations on campus. The person who later became Senator Jesse Helms, who was a radio announcer at the time in North Carolina, uh, he had fomented a movement to ban anti-war speakers from the campus. So anybody who came to, to rally against the war had to, <laughs> they stood on a wall that was between the public street and the campus. And then there was everybody like out on the campus. But I wasn't involved in that either. I knew it was happening. And my professors were profoundly, they were as backward and reactionary, maybe more so than the professors in Alabama. I remember when Kent State happened, I, I was a Renaissance, doctoral student, Renaissance literature, and I had a Shakespeare seminar that afternoon and my professor mentioned the, the massacre in Kent State. And then he said, well, they just should have shot them all. This is my, this is a professor in, uh, in graduate studies in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So that kind of gives you, you know, things were, we were in so deeply into the struggle at that point. And out of that, as Sarah Evans, who was also at the North UNC at that time, Sarah Evans later wrote about this convergence of women's liberation, the anti-war movement, the black civil rights movement. The university also wouldn't allow, she tried to teach a class in women's liberation history on campus, just, just wanted a classroom. The university wouldn't let her have a classroom. She was gonna teach it for free. She had to go across the street into you know, the little shops and rent a room to, to teach it. I was still very much on the periphery. I was married. I had two children. I had one child and then I had another one while I was in grad school. But the movements got through to me I remember the first time I picked up a piece of literature, they had a lit table in front of the undergraduate library. And I used to walk on the other side of the quad to avoid the lit table. For I knew, you know, if I picked up the writing and I read it, then it would be a confrontation with myself. So I just didn't want to touch the literature. This is so ironic considering what I have become. But um, eventually I in the English department program that I was in, because it was the war, we had a preponderance of female grad students because the men were at war. And we weren't paid as much and we weren't given as many classes as the men who remained. And we began to organize around the work issue. And I got drawn into that. I got drawn into it as a worker, essentially, even though I didn't think of myself as a worker. I got drawn into the organizing because it affected me directly, not as much money, you know, not the advanced classes that you needed to go on and get a, an academic job teaching the advanced classes, you know, they, they were giving it to the guys. So I began to be involved with the women's liberation movement in that way, in a, in a lot of different ways, you know, consciousness raising, working on a newsletter, and the things that you, you, do, you did doing, uh, you know, eventually organizing around the Equal Rights Amendment in North Carolina, which kept going down to defeat, <laughs> you know, under at the hands of by then Senator Jesse Helms. I feel like me and Jesse Helms, we were like toe to toe for a heck of a lot of years, John. It's interesting to hear you talk about 
your entry point into a long career of activism being effectively a labor movement, a labor organization. By the time this airs, we may know the results of the Amazon hearing, I mean, the, the Amazon vote here in Alabama, but it's certainly something that's been on top of mind here in the state for, for several weeks now, and, and just kind of the, the long history of labor organizing as a part of civil rights organizing, and even gay rights organizing, a lot of that comes down to labor discrimination and issues like that. We're going to come back to your history, but kind of looking back on your career uh, with all of the types of organizing and consciousness raising that you've done, do you see levels of intersection that maybe, you know, most of us are missing? Ways that the trans fight in North Carolina right now might be tied into some of the fights that you were having, you know, 40, 50 years ago? I think that my journey is similar to that of many people within the U.S. right now who are workers but who haven't had what I might call working class consciousness. In other words, you're doing the work, but the vision that the US offers us is, well, just work hard and you can like move up, move up, move up, move up. You can be, you know, management, you can own a business, you can, right, all of that. When in fact, most of us are just gonna be working our whole lives and, what does it mean to know that, to not shy away from that, to understand that is, that is what we share collectively with people and how to come together and do something out of that collectivity. And I, and I certainly didn't have that consciousness growing up, even though my parents were both workers, right? And I, you know, I earned the money from my college tuition by my at least the first year by working at the garment plant in my hometown for mm -hmm. all summer. You know, I I earned I earned a dollar fifty an hour. I still remember how much I earned. I think that the action by the majority black workers at the Bessemer Amazon warehouse marks, I hope, and I believe it may, a turning point in that understanding of collectivity because they are saying workers' rights are civil rights. Civil rights are workers' rights. In other words, these, we're not talking about two separate spheres that people live in somehow. You know, like trans people live in one little bubble and workers live over here. No, in fact, most of the trans people that I know, they're working minimum wage jobs that's very hard for them to get work because people look at their gender and then they disqualify them because of their gender non-conforming. And this was true of my, my spouse and partner, Leslie Feinberg, who had a very, very precarious work life her, her entire life. So I feel very emphatically that like these anti-trans bills that are going through that appear, you know, that are being put forward as being like, protecting women from trans people, young girls from trans youth, or somehow they're, or they're attacking trans youth by denying them certain kinds of medical care. It's just another ploy in the old, old game that we know in the South so well of dividing us from each other. 
of somehow saying, oh, they're in that group over there and they're not part of your group. You know, the trans people are over there somewhere. Well, when I was growing up, we certainly had gender non-conforming people in Centerville and everybody knew who they were. And they did make fun of them sometimes, but they also were in church with them as well. They didn't ostracize them, you know, mm -hmm. at least this was within the white community. And I'm sure that was true in the black community. There were plenty of trans people. So this splitting, you know, this punitive, punishing, bullying of trans people is just another iteration of the racism, another iteration of the anti-woman stuff. I mean, we know it. We know it may be better than any other region and we know how to resist it maybe better than any other region too you know we yeah. really know how to go up against it i think one of the most abhorrent parts of, of the legislation that we are seeing the anti-trans legislation we're seeing in you know certainly states like arkansas that have already passed and, and signed it into law um and, and some of the bills that we're starting to see in north carolina and elsewhere in the south and elsewhere in you know in, in the country to to be clear one of the most abhorrent parts is the lack of health care access for trans people. You know, your, your new collection of poetry was written while your spouse, Leslie, was struggling with illness and dying and, and has since died. What does healthcare access look like for trans people right now? And what was that process like for y'all having to navigate that? I believe that for at least the first part of her illness, you weren't able to legally be married I don't, I'm not sure about New York, but certainly in most of the country. That's right. We weren't. We, you know, we were together 22 years and the sodomy statutes that were the basis, you know, the, the legal constitutional basis for all this, you know, the, the sodomy statutes were reaffirmed in 87 in Bowers versus Hardwick, and they only were overturned in 2004 by the Supreme Court. And it was after the sodomy statutes were overturned. And I don't even know, you know, if the, your listeners understand, they were called the crime against nature statutes. And basically they made, if you had um, sexual relations that were not uh, normatively, you know, heteronormative, right, in, in any way, then you, you were subject to, to felony penalties, felony. So when I came out as a lesbian in North Carolina in 75, the reason I lost custody of my children was because I was a, I could be charged with a felony and therefore that was it. I was an unfit mother, boom, my children were taken away. Taken away and, and your ex-husband moved them to, to, to Kentucky. Okay, and then to Michigan. And I, and you know, Michigan. I had no, that was it, I lost custody. And that was going on until not, I mean, it's still going on. I mean, not all that long ago, I got an email from a woman in Alabama who was losing custody of her two girls being lesbian. So to let people understand, you know, there was a long, long movement struggle against the sodomy statutes. They were the basis. Once they were overturned, then the movement toward marriage was undertaken. And that came unevenly across the country. And less, you know, first there were domestic partnerships, then there were civil unions, and then there was marriage. And, and at each step of the way, Leslie and I took advantage of all of that. But 
you may be domestic partnered and you may be civil union and you may be legally married, but if you're in the emergency room with a trans person, none of that, almost none of that matters. I mean, maybe you can pull out your marriage certificate or your domestic partnership and maybe you can make some headway with that, but it's a hard road. And in our life, before any of those were available to us, Leslie got very sick. And I remember one snowy night, Jersey City, she had a temperature of 105 and I took her to the emergency room in Hoboken actually, because it was closer. And the emergency room doctor there started to examine her and I wasn't allowed to be in with her. He started, but he, she told me later. He started to examine her. And when he discovered that she was a trans person through the physical examination, he told her to get up and put her clothes back on and leave, hmm. leave the emergency room and leave the hospital. And she said, well, I've got a fever. She said, you're a, you're a very sick person. She says, yeah, I have a fever of 105. Tell me why I have a fever of 105 or run some blood tests or something. And he said, just get out of here. That has been the state of medicine for trans people if they even go to a hospital or make it to a hospital but the stories you know there are many stories the trans person hit in a accident on the street the emts come they won't touch her you know it's, it's it goes on and on and on now what is happening is that depending on what part of the country live, you live in, there may be places that you can go, like the Lord Callan Clinic in New York City, right? Where you can get trans positive care. And different communities have led on this. The Philadelphia community had, you know, a, every year has a host, a, a trans health conference, right? Uh, and Leslie actually organized one with a nurse friend of ours in Buffalo when she was alive uh, that for like, you know, credit and all that. But uh, until this is really addressed systematically in the medical schools, it's not going to change at a treatment level. I could go tell you many, long, you know, many stories about the kind of treatment or non-treatment or abuse that Leslie got. We, you know, eventually found one or two doctors for whom her trans self wasn't problematic, although they didn't necessarily know a lot about what it meant to be trans healthy. I'm sure that she died before her time because over the years she didn't get adequate treatment or any treatment sometimes, you know? So it's another reason to be outraged at the, at the bills that are on the, on the deck right now, like you say, all across the country, there are 20 something of them. It's not just the South. It's another reason to fight them. And again, it's just another part of that pattern where a group of people are othered. They're made to be different from us. What I have learned more than anything about being part of, of a trans community and being a trans ally myself is that the gender spectrum is infinite with human beings and people who don't understand that don't understand, you know, you, it, once you understand that, you understand people who are trans are on this infinity of this spectrum and you're on it too, you know, 
I'm a Southern femme. I always talk too loud, <laughs> you know, too loud for a woman. And that's something that's especially, well, for, first of all, I, I just want to say, I, I'm so sorry that you and Leslie had to go through that. And that, like you said, you know, she was robbed of time that she should have had because of, you know, the laws of this country and, and the, the numerous ways that this has happened to you in your life. But this North Carolina law, you know, similar to the sodomy law, if it passes, people who act outside of heteronormative behavior as teenagers, their, their parents will be informed. A country that is, was founded on colonization and needed to reproduce the colonizers, right, then held up a certain kind of enforced masculinity and femininity, maleness and femaleness, to literally to like reproduce and occupy, right? And it is an, a, a forced model. It is not a human model or a human norm. And in fact, when my ancestors and other people's ancestors who were colonizers showed up, the native nations had all kinds of genders. You know, there's been lots of studies on all the different genderednesses of all the different native nations that were hundreds and hundreds of different nations in this, you know, this continent. And they, they had social functions within their own communities that were positive and uh, part of the fabric of daily life and care and production and reproduction and fully functional and beautiful. And then this invasion of people came, not very many of them relative to the peoples who were here. And then this other model began, you know, of mass of male and female was carried here with them and imposed. And we're still struggling against it in exactly in you know, in North Carolina and other places, I think it isn't an accident that this is hanging on more in the rural areas that are still lands being lived on by the peoples who came down from those original colonizers. Up here, in, I'm not speaking just to the South, here in Syracuse where I'm living now, uh, people are living on family farms that they took still, that they took from the Haudenosaunee, different, you know, the Onondaga or the Oneida. It was imposed for con conquest, this notion of what it means to be male and female. And it's still being used post-colonially by, you know, the power interests that want to keep us divided. Coming up after the break, Minnie Bruce Pratt shares more stories and advice from her life, plus a little poetry. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. I can imagine that for a lot of queer Southerners, it matters that you're from Alabama. It matters that you, you, know, you started your fight in North Carolina. Um, you know, you, you said to start this conversation that you want everybody to know that you are from Alabama <laughs> <laughs> and that you're mad that they don't. So, you know, what would have meant to you growing up in Alabama or, or in North Carolina, maybe before, you, you know, you were even realizing 
that that side of yourself? What would it have meant to you to hear those stories younger? Just watching young people now, especially my own grandchildren, I see that the visibility of LGBTQ life means that people grapple with their sexuality, with the possibilities around their sexuality years before I was able to do that. If I had had some stories or some explicit understanding, then, you know, my life trajectory, I think, would have been quite different. And, you know, it's not like there weren't, for instance, gender nonconforming people and, and probably lesbians in my community. You know, there was somebody who later, when I asked my mother about her when I was grown up, because I was wondering, you know, it's an older woman who was in my church congregation, actually. When I asked my mother about her, she said, oh, well, she just liked women too much. So, you know, that's the way, I mean, and that was when I was grown. She, I didn't get this when I was younger, right? So I think that, in fact, what the right wing fears about LGBTQ visibility is correct. That if we are out there and we are visible, then young people and all people will know there's a different set of possibilities for them. And the right wing defines those possibilities as evil, satanic, damned, sinful. And I define those possibilities as part of the human spectrum and good and positive as long as arrived at fully and consciously as part of a, a process, not enforced by anyone in any way. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you and our, and our listeners one story that I learned later that I wish I had known earlier. And this was from my great, my aunt Gilder. This is my mother's youngest sister. And once I was out to her, which I did come out to her, um, she at, at a certain point told me this story. So she was born in uh, 1919 and she would have gone to the first grade then in about 1925, 1925. Mm -hmm. So the summer before the first grade, she decided she wanted to get her hair cut like a boy's. And she walked from the family farmhouse, which was about a mile and a half, maybe into downtown Centerville to the barber shop, where I think Mr. Hicks was the barber at the time. It's still in the same place in town. <laughs> I don't know if it's still a barber shop, but it's still in the same place. The stripy little pole is still there, everything. She walked in, she said to, I think Mr. Hicks, she said, I want you to cut my hair like a boy's. And Mr. Hicks starts laughing. And then he says, well, do your parents know that you're doing this? And she lies and says, yes. And then he laughs some more. And then he cuts her hair like a boy's. And she walks home. She's six, right? And I saw a picture of her in the first grade with her hair cut like that. She looks like a little boy, beautiful. She never married. 
She never used the word lesbian or trans or anything like that to me. She was in the Navy during World War II. When she died, her hair was just that short. When I brought Leslie home to see her, she looked, took one look at Leslie and opened her arms out. Leslie, Leslie, gave her a big hug. She loved me, I loved her. I wish I had known her better. I wish I had known myself. You see, I wish I had known myself better earlier. And then I would have known her better, but she gave me so much. We knew what we were to each other. None of the language was the language that I used in my generation, but the love from one queer, strange, Southern, lesbian, <laughs> defiant person to another was so great. That's beautiful. That process of self-discovery for you in North Carolina that leads to the government taking your children away from you. I, you know, I know that, I mean, that in particular had to be so painful and so scary and, and hard for you at, at the time. And this isn't a, a uniquely Southern thing, but it's certainly part of the Southern tradition of, of taking, you know, horrible pain and injustice and then tur turning it into um, either art or, or activism, or in your case, both. How conscious was that decision for you, you know, in, in turning that experience into to your collection of poetry and then also into a lifelong career of, of activism? Because, you know, it, it certainly seems like some people could have just kind of given up in that moment. Well, the, you know, the pressures that came to bear on me were not unique and it's true. It, 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 they're leveled, you know, they're leveled at groups of people. And for some people, it, it's too much. And that's, that's one of the reasons I, I do the work I do. Cause I, it's not like I haven't seen that damage and I, to people very close to me. But what saved me was I was part, I was, I was part of the movement. I mean, I, I was just beginning to be part of it when I fell in love with another woman and then I decided I needed to live separately. And then that was the beginning of the process when my husband got the children, but I was in the movement. I was connected to people who, um, who I did work with. I read, I, I organized in little ways, but then bigger ways. And so I was very conscious. I, I actually wrote, I wrote a book about, you know, the children, losing the children, staying connected to the children. It's called Crime Against Nature. The only crime against nature is doing things like this to people. Yeah. And, and there was a poem in there where I actually said uh, that, I, that I decided I wouldn't be a tragedy. I would not be a tragedy. But I was only able to, to live that life because there was a movement. I don't know what I would have done otherwise. I, I really don't know what I would have done. You know, I would have become an alcoholic. I would have killed myself. I 
would have sunk into a lifelong depression. I, I really don't know what I would have done, but I had the movement. And so it wasn't just that I was doing these little small things. I saw people doing big things, bigger than me, or doing things collectively, not just individually. That was the thing. There was all this collectivity going on that most people don't even know about now. The whole women in print movement, when the printers wouldn't print our material because it was explicitly lesbian. And in North Carolina, that is what happened to the magazine I was working on. We took the proofs to them to print. They said, oh, lesbian, oh, no, we're not gonna print it. So what happened? People, women learn how to print. They went, they apprenticed themselves. They learned how to be printers. They bought equipment. You know, I know, I knew how to burn the plates for my first book. It was part of the equipment that Lollipop Power owned. Who was Lollipop Power? They were the first publisher of non-sexist children's literature in the country, in North Carolina. They had they had the equipment. They had the press. They had the stapler. They had the thing you you know did your electronic plates on so the print they could use the press. They had the giant trimmer that was like a guillotine. Wham! You trimmed your page, you know, you trimmed your pages after you stapled your book together. We learned how to do all this stuff. It was an entire enormous movement. There were presses, there were distribution companies, there were bookstores, there were, by presses, I mean literal printing presses, and then there were actual business presses. My first book was printed by one of them, Firebrand Books. Nobody knows about that. Like, I, I wasn't alone. That was how it happened. I didn't do it by myself. I remember when Dorothy Allison, who people may be familiar with her name because she had a New York Times bestseller, when that book came out, the New York Times reviewed it. And it was like, oh, suddenly, out of nowhere, a new vibrant Southern voice appears. I thought, I've known Dorothy for 20 years. <laughs> she's been doing all the things. She, you know, she's been part of the collective. She's been part of the magazine collectives, part of the political collectives, writing by herself at night, difficult times with her family, ostracized by other feminists because of her sexuality. 20 years of that or more her whole life, right? She didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, of course, South Carolina is also considered nowhere by the rest of the country, like Alabama is, by the New York Times anyway. So like that's, if, if there is any young queer person listening who feels isolated and alone and is very discouraged, there are collectivities to go to now, you know, and, and Googling them locally will bring you to them. and you. You don't have to be by yourself, even when those big voices are saying, you know, they're going to punish you. We have shown we're strong enough. We push them back over the years. We've done it step by step. We've done it. We've done it. And won many of the fights that you you fought. You know, you, you've you've helped build one of those communities in Syracuse, uh, the, the LGBTQ studies program there. You know, I'm curious about the parallels between that community of acceptance you were building in, in New York versus the community that saved you in North Carolina. And, you know, if, if you have seen or have been able to have that type of community in, in Alabama um, when you have returned home over the co course of three years. 
I think that the work in Syracuse, it, it, you know, to go back to the point that you raised originally around worker organizing, I think the work that I did with the LGBTQ program in Syracuse was mostly at the university and it was about my workplace, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the academic program, of course, that was important. And that was also about making a place for the young people coming along to, to be part of a collectivity um, as they were doing their, their university training toward their own work life. But also I was a worker at the university. And so there was a lot of struggle around domestic partner benefits, you know, appropriate treatment of us who had domestic partners, wages and so forth. Um, So that was a different, you know, it was later in time than some, I came to the university in 2005. So some of the other battles had been waged and won and we were moving into this other sort of moment uh, of application and struggle. I mean, it's just uh, this year that the Supreme Court ruled that uh, that the clause of protection surrounding sex in workplaces extends to gender nonconforming and trans identity. That happened this year. Hmm. Um, well, wait, I guess it was last year. 2020. Yeah. Summer of 2020. Yeah. Summer of 2020. So, you know, between 2005 and 2020, there's been this in in continued struggle around workplace issues and gender and sex and sexuality. And, and I, I, I'm happy that I've been able to over the years to reconnect with the women's studies program and LGBTQ initiatives at the University of Alabama both in Birmingham and in Tuscaloosa, um, because the struggles there have been similar. You know, they've they've been about making sure there's safe space for the young folks, and also making sure their workplace fairness around sexuality and gender issues, including trans issues. And the um, the, the session I'm going to do uh, probably the day right around when this podcast airs, I'm doing something with the LGBTQ alums for Alabama, and that's to fund scholarships for, um, you know, young students who, some of whom have been thrown out of their family homes still, and, you know, don't have resources to fall back on. Um, So I'm really happy to be part of that continuity. In terms of my uh, community and in Alabama, it's mostly political, the people I connect to uh, when I go home. Um, and also my very oldest friend who I knew when I was in, in, in footy footies <laughs> and I was like a toddler, we were neighbors then and she came out later on uh, also. We didn't know it then, but we were very close. You know, we're still the best of friends now. Sometimes, though, my neighbors at home aren't kind to me. One who I was very fond of, you know, I went home with very short hair and I don't know what happened. I think his religious views got to him and uh, he decided I was going to hell and disavowed me. So we still have a ways to go. I would imagine that that is certainly more prevalent in in the South is the effect of evangelical Christian beliefs on 
people's uh, beliefs about sexuality. Well, you know, I, I know there are people listening for whom their religion is very dear. And I understand that because I take my own spirituality quite seriously. But I just want to remind listeners that some, not all, but much of the Christianity in the South as practiced by white people is in direct lineage from the Christianity that I was taught during segregation and the Christianity that was taught during enslavement period. And it was a Christianity that was used to reinforce and assert the heavenly blessing of dominance and enslavement and hatred, racism, woman hating, queer hating, and there, it's, a, it's been very tangled up with that over time. In the church I was raised in, you know, was one of the Presbyterian churches that split over segregation. I, I encourage your listeners to really um, think about the principles that their church is teaching. And if it really is about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if it really is about, and the first of these things is charity and love, love, because I, I know that underneath uh, those messages are often the human hearts of people who just do want to love. They're yeah. hearing something different from their preacher. Thinking about, you know, the story you were telling about the community there in North Carolina and the lollipop press and, and all of these stories that aren't necessarily known nationally as part of queer history. Who are five Southerners that you wish we all knew the names of? Lillian Smith, who wrote, well, who wrote a lot of things. I won't even give names. Just Google Lillian Smith, a white Georgia-born Southern woman who organized in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s against segregation. Her home was burned twice, burned to the ground. She she was a beacon of light to young white Southerners during that time. And almost no one knows her name now, but she, her work has meant tremendous, tremendously to me. She was also, her, her primary adult relationship was with another woman. So this was one of those relationships that wasn't called or named for what it was at the time. And I don't even know how, how she would name it, but it was her, her significant relationship. But her, I would say her identity above all was anti an anti-racist. And then Polly Murray, who is African-American, North Carolina, maybe not born, but raised in North Carolina by uh, I think her aunt or her grandmother. She was a lawyer first, and then in the end an Episcopal priest. She, as a law student at Howard, she developed the argument in one of her senior projects that was later picked up and used by Thurgood Marshall as the basis for Brown versus Board of Education. And she was a gender non-conforming person. Polly was part of her name, but then she chose Polly, P-A-U-L-I. Her, her childhood home is, I think, now going to be a historical site in North Carolina, in Durham, 
you, people can visit it. Her, her work was later cited by Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a groundbreaking uh, case around voting rights for women. And it was based on a case brought by Lowndes County uh, African-American women who were part of the Lowndes County organizing for the vote, Lowndes County Freedom Democratic Party, right? They brought a case against Alabama for denying uh, their voting rights as women and as black people. And that went to the Supreme Court and Polly Murray's groundwork in that case was then part of the victory. So not only was she part of Brown versus Board of Education, unacknowledged in certain ways, but also part of voting rights for women. So she's a, she's a great, great intellectual, you know, forerunner. Um, so, the, you know, those two women spring immediately to mind. Uh, I'd have to think longer about uh, the other three. <laughs> we can come back around on those three. Um, but those, those are two great ones that we should certainly know. Let's talk a little bit about your new book, Magnified, which we talked a little bit about, you know, uh, at the beginning of the show, you had written it as, as Leslie was sick and, and was passing. And, you, you know, I think it's serendipity for the rest of us that it is being published during such a season of grief where we've all been affected by this pandemic. And I know you wrote this poem at, at a different time and for a different reason, but maybe it was the pollen imagery, but the great swamp really kind of reached out and grabbed me. So I wondered if you might read that for us. I can read that for you. And I would also like to read Hargrove shows. This poem was a swamp in New Jersey that Leslie and I used to go to during the day sometimes. The great swamp. That spring, you and I leaned over the edge, staring into the swamp. What was in there? Amphibian eyes glinting like treasure in the water. Gold dots of pollen flecking a sodden carpet. That spring, we saw you were beginning to die. The arrowhead leaves flew slowly up green out of the murky water. You got sick and sicker. We leaned, our shadows reached into the water. We looked down into the mud, past where what we'd seen, to where what could be lived, waiting to come. That was at the beginning. You know, the book is about learning to live with grief and also live at the same time. This I wrote when I was home once. I, I Leslie was still alive. I, I, I had come home and I go down to the Cahaba. I always go to the Cahaba. There's a beautiful stretch near West Blockton, not that far from Bessemer, mm-hmm. called Hargrove Shoals where the Cahaba lilies bloom. If people don't know, you need to go and look at the Cahaba lilies. Um, this was later, the lilies had stopped blooming and it was the, the road, the dirt road was real dusty. And I drove down probably in August. Uh, again, still learning to deal with grief and life at the same time. 
Hargrove shows. The habit of living taken away. The green chalked with white dust, like grief, like death on the way to the river. To lose a person like you who can say the eternal nature of changing matter. Who longs to go ahead to see who will be on earth in a year, in a million years. The sun overthrows the cool. The river struggles with the shoals and breathes out the rapids, breathes out, out. The river breathes in so quietly I can't hear. To lose a person like you who can say the terrible beauty. If you were here, you'd see how the coal dust rhymes the river edge in black sand. You'd see the lump-lunged miners drinking beer in the shade, panting for their breath. The people who just drove up, their child runs down to the worn shoals, broad as a spillway and says, we can wade in the shallows or maybe shadows. Everything is in motion. The leaf shadows hurry. Everything is in motion here at Hargrove Shoals. The wind begins to make its afternoon way down the river. The child counts to see how many times, 53 times, there is no before and no after. Eternal nature of changing matter. The terrible beauty. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you for asking me to read. To close, there are still so many battles left to be fought um, in the South and in the country. What advice do you have to, to young activists or, or to young people who are maybe just kind of thinking about dipping their toe into organizing, who maybe attended a, a women's march in 2017 or a Black Lives Matter rally last summer or, or who are starting to organize in their workplace or seeking their, their queer community? I would say be brave. There's a place for you. And if you can search until you find the right place for you to make change, then you will have the life that you want for yourself and that you imagine, and you won't lead the life that someone else is trying to imagine for you. Be brave. It's wonderful to be able to look back and say you have led the life that you wanted to lead. Thank you so much. This is great. Hope to talk to you again soon. Bye, John. And that's our show, folks. Thanks so much to Minnie Bruce Pratt, not only for taking the time to speak with us today, but also for the life she's lived. If you want to hear more from her, the University of Alabama LGBTQ Alumni Association is hosting a virtual event with her and Joshua Burford, the founder of the Invisible Histories Project, on Thursday, April 22nd at 6 p.m. Central. You can find details and ways to support scholarships for LGBTQ students in the episode show notes. If you liked this episode and you want to go deeper in queer Southern history, sign up for our newsletter, The Conversation. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters or find a link in the show notes. 
This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. Our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. And our show is edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team at Edit Audio. If you've been listening to our show for a few episodes now and you haven't reviewed it or shared it with your friends, please do. It really helps us grow our audience so we can tell more great Southern stories. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. Bye.